What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is Chris Dadge, a Canadian drummer and producer based out of Calgary, Alberta. He does a great job of giving y'all his backstory himself, so I'm just going to shut up and let the master do the talking, but there will be a bunch of links in the show notes for you to check out all of his drumming. It's really unique stuff, and in this episode, his perspective as a producer, as well as a drummer, is priceless. Uh, thanks again to Sheridan Riley, the drummer for the band Always, for recommending Chris. Sheridan has been on the show before, so um, really appreciate you sending me Chris's way, because he did not disappoint, so... Sheridan, you're awesome. All right, please enjoy my chat with Chris Dadge about the five records that shaped him into the player and the person he is today. Cheers. You do so much. You're so prolific. You're so busy. Uh, before we hopped on, you just said that you had a big, there was a whole festival in Calgary that you just got done uh, being a part of. And so sum up a month in your life. What do you, what would you say is the things you do the most, the things that keep you busy? Because you do so much, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I have a lot of stuff on the go and it's always a bit different and that is as much by design as it is just me stumbling into something that I like. I mean, I get, I'm a kind of person who gets a bit, if, if I'm doing something for a longer stretch, I start to get a bit itchy with it and then I, I want to pivot back to the other thing that I would maybe do otherwise. But over the course of a month, what you might see me doing would be a lot of recording for bands. Um, I've been doing that for the last five or six years, and it's become sort of the most... It, it's been the way I've been making my living recently, is recording and producing and mixing. And um, before that, it all led up through just wanting to do those things with the bands that I was in. So it was always a bit... It was kind of always pretty DIY and, and, and a way to so, sort of support these independent initiatives that I'd been doing, whether it was with bands or um, different series. So I, I, I do record a lot. I have a place called Child Stone Studios in Calgary, um, and that's Calgary, Alberta, Canada, that is. And uh, we, um, I do a lot of stuff here with uh, people from, mostly from, from the city, but also um, sometimes from around the province or even outside the province if, if someone's really heard something that I did that they, they like. Um, so there's a lot of recording stuff in the studio, Any, anything from full-on production, working with an artist from... I have chords and lyrics and a song, and we're going to build it up from there all the way over to bands that have their whole, you know, they're a band that is practiced and they have their thing together, and then I'm helping them sort of capture it in the, the way that makes the most sense. And then uh, the other thing I do is I, I do play drums in a lot of bands. Um, and uh, at, the, at, the, at the moment I'm playing in maybe the most number of bands that I've ever played in before, uh, when I was coming up and I was just doing drumming and nothing else, that was kind of the thing. So I wanted to get out there and do as much as I could. And so I was uh, I was just saying yes to everything. And, and eventually that sort of got a bit funneled into just a few things and then some production elements that were happening. But nowadays it's sort of like post, post-pandemic especially, I, I feel like there were so many people who either I was already working with or people who I was maybe about to work with unknowingly who got, you know, the chance to do music. They got that back again. So post-pandemic, there's been an explosion of activity with live playing and being in bands. And as I mentioned before, I just played this festival, Slide Island in Calgary, and I played eight shows with seven bands over a, a, a handful of days. 
And that was, <laughs> was a lot. That's a personal record for me. I think a record for the festival too, but also... Um, yeah, yesterday I, it was was zombie day. Basically, I just kind of like um, I kind of died uh, in a certain way yesterday, and that was good. We we just watched a lot of Bob's Burgers and chilled out on the couch and ate Indian food. So that that was okay. That's a good yeah. That's like a post tour week for me for sure. Yeah, it, it was a lot like being on tour. I felt similarly exhausted. And then, then I also run a concert series here called Bug Incision, which um, is uh, focusing on improvised and otherwise experimental music. I have a deep love and connection to the art of free improvisation, and that's a big part of who I am as a drummer and percussionist. And in 2006, me and a few compatriots started up this series together, and they are no longer part of the organization part of it, but... Um, it, the, the series persists and the concert series and the, and the record label uh, persists and we do monthly shows here and it's kind of in, in Calgary it's, it's kind of the main place to do more off the wall things and uh, there's half of the series is um, sort of there's sort of like curated jam sessions almost where I'll invite a number of people to play eight or nine people and then we'll do we'll just group those folks into groupings over the course of the night but not everybody knows who's going to play or not everybody is met and so th those sorts of things are what guide half of the series and then, and then the other half is sort of conventional programming where touring artists and local people who want to do projects are coming in and and showing me in and the city what what they got going on and it's um it's it's amazing so those those things happen and i mean outside of those kind of realms that's that fills me up for the most part i, <laughs> it I, I don't like do it. i don't do much else <laughs> these, these days yeah have there been any bands that have been spawned from you putting together three people and then now they play together and they're like a really tight knit group i i i can think of a couple that involve me that that have had that mm -hmm. and then i'm i'm fairly certain yeah no de definitely some others actually there was but back in the early days there was um this this amazing drummer and an amazing bass player uh mark flashacker was a drummer and scott monroe is the bass player and multi-instrumentalist genius uh, he plays in that band preoccupations who are doing very well this last decade or so but they've um th those guys are were both instrumentalists with an in interest in vocal improvisation, specifically effect-laden vocal improvisation. So they would get wild with each other as vocalists. And, and I curated early on a radio series that was, we would do performances and interviews on the radio. And so th those guys were one of the initial groups that did that. And then that spawned a record. And yeah, there were, there were a few groups, um, yeah, definitely over the years that have, that have done that. And um, that, that's, even if that's not happening on a regular basis, that's kind of one of the reasons that I'm trying to do it is the series is very much about being able to have an outlet for someone who might just want to try something out and see how it goes. And um, we're not a results-oriented uh, series. It's it's very much about it happening, period. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what, what does happen is neither here nor there, ultimately. But luckily, our audience base is open-minded enough to go with the flow and just take it as it comes. And then, and then I want people to have a place where they can feel like they can try something and, and do something that they, you know, it's not as it, it's, it's low key. It's low stakes. There's not a lot of production involved with the shows and there's not a lot of um, pomp and circumstance involved with them. It's very much like a low key. We, we are these days we're, we're doing shows in a, a wonderful brewery called Highline Brewing in town. 
And so it, it's really about a, a platform. The series is about having a platform for people to try something and, and feel like they can have a safety net of some sort and a, a receptive uh, bunch of ear, ears to listen to what they're up to. That's really cool. You're doing God's work, man. That's that's great. I'm. I wish I had an outlet like that. We were doing something not too long ago with big with big fat snare drum, where we it was called the Drum Club Project, and it was basically we did. Essentially, the idea was based off a book club where everyone would, you know, read the same book and then talk about it. There was one, a producer would upload something, a baseline or some sort of anything, and then all these drummers would just be like records thirty seconds of something on top of it. And then we'd all see how we interpreted it, what we did. You can chop it up, whatever. It was really fun. Um, and then things got a little too busy for us. But I'm happy you're doing that, man. That's that's great. Well, well, thank you, Ed. It's been 17 years of, of doing this as the series. And then the, the, the record label part of it has been around for one more year than that. But yeah, it's, it's been a huge part of my identity and the way I look at things. And it's, it's helped me um, immeasurably with just meeting people and yeah, I'm sure. Having having a presence in the, in the local community and whatnot. Definitely. It's a win-win. Um, all right. Well, let's just hop into your, your big fat five. So number one, the album is gone just like a train. The artist is Bill Frizzell. The release series is 1998. And the key tracks, um, depending on which one you want to play, but you suggested people check out Verona, uh, Egg Radio, Girl Asks Boy Part 1. But yeah, the drummer is Jim Keltner. So take it away, and then we'll listen to one of those songs. Well, like like with a lot of these choices that I've made for these tracks, I mean, Keltner is uh, like a holy individual to me. I mean, for, for my money, it, it really doesn't get better than a guy like that. I discovered this record when I was in late high school. I had a friend whose dad had a really cool CD collection in, in their house. And, and I remember just picking through the CD collection one day when we were hanging out at the house and, th and this, the Jim Woodring cover of this album jumped out. But also I heard of, you know, I, I was already a nerdy drum person in my late teens. And I was, I, I definitely had encountered Keltner, um, mostly probably on things like uh, John Lennon records and, and George Harrison records, Traveling Wilburys, Steely Dan. I've been a big Steely Dan fan for my whole life, basically. And um, yeah, so I heard this record and it was the first time hearing Bill Frisell, um, which is a whole other wormhole that could be discussed. But um, Jim Keltner's drumming, on, he, he's a L.A. session person, quintessentially. He's that, you know, that's that's how people think of him for the most part. But this was a record where he's playing with a jazz guitarist and he's playing quote-unquote jazz. I mean, Bill Frisell sort of transcends the idea of, of jazz in general, but mm -hmm. um, he's normally known to just support a song and maybe play a neat fill here and there, have a great drum sound, have a great feel. But this record completely blew all that stuff up. And he's, I don't know if you've heard it, but there's, there's, there, there's such a crazy range of texture that's involved with this record. And he, he makes the most beautiful use of a relatively albeit strange, but relatively small drum setup. I can never get over how many sounds and tones and nuances he was getting out of this kit. And an interesting part about this album and this this story for me is that like, I, I was a, an avid reader of Modern Drummer for my, my whole teenage life. And I had a subscription for many years and I always just read it cover to cover. No matter who the drummer was, I would always read the article and absorb the, uh, all the stuff that was in it. It wasn't the sort of thing where you'd skip to just what you were interested in with the magazine. But 
Modern Drummer had an, the Ask a Pro section where you could write in and they would field your question to the said pro. And so I heard this record and I did not understand what was going on with some of it. I, I couldn't figure out what, what was happening with basically the snare sounds. Ultimately, there were so many different snare sounds on this record. And so I wrote into Modern Drummer. I said, Keltner, what was your setup on this record? And lo and behold, to my mind-blown young mind, I uh, got a response back from Keltner, and he wrote back saying that he had, you know, a, a kick drum and a floor toms, 2218, something like that, relatively standard. But then he had a snare in the snare position, and then his two rack tom positions were also snares, which blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I could not, th this is not something that I thought about when I was younger. <laughs> it's against um, the rules and, as far as I'm concerned at that point. We've all seen the snare off to the left, you know, to the left of the hi-hat. That's all well and fine. But having, having two other snares uh, in those tom <laughs> positions. And so suddenly it all made sense. And I, I just, and not to mention, he, he does all this interesting percussion work on it with shakers. And his, his shaker playing is so interesting. He, he does like, the shaker will almost be working in sort of a, a rubbing sort of contrasting way to the way this the drum feel is happening and it's all i'm not sure if there's overdubs on it or whether it's all live i mean if, if someone told me it was all live i, I would believe it but um, too, yeah the whole thing is just so unbelievable and and it's not flashy playing there's no you know the flashiest thing you get is like you know a seven stroke roll leading into a downbeat or something like that it's, it's nothing showy but it's it's just utterly breathtaking drumming and and I you catch me in the right mood with this record I, I will weep lis listening to some of the drumming on this record Verona which I think is one of the tracks that I, that I that I mentioned there just has a large variety of different textures and sonorities from the drums that just to me was just shocking when I first heard that and it, it just moved me and it made me you can be virtuosic in a way where you're not being Chopsy, I've always sort of battled with the idea of being the idea of technique was always something that I that I had a bit of a an issue was and, and the most profound definition of what technique is is just the ability to execute your ideas. That's technique. Um, Nailed and it. So it's 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 relative, and and that was very interesting and deep to me. This is a very vivid illustration of that kind of thing where he's not playing, he's not getting in your face or overdoing anything, but there's there's absolute virtuosity happening with what's going on egg radio i think i thought was just that's that song is just a lovely melody just a beautiful tune and then also the third one i think boy asks girl or whatever yep. it's called I, I had to look it up i'm bad girl titles, boy part but one but yeah that one has some of the most delicious brush playing that i've ever heard in my life the way he's just hitting those quarter notes on the brush and it's just recorded so beautifully but then of course it's his playing and the way he's just dragging those notes across and it's it's just completely amazing. I, I followed Keltner. I've checked out so much of his stuff and there's so many great things, albums that I could have chose uh, in, instead of this one ultimately. But this this album kind of has it all for me. And weirdly enough, I'll I'll throw this in as as an aside is that he recently made a couple records with um, this guitar player from California called Mike Baguetta and the legendary bass player Mike Watt from the Minutemen. Mm. These three guys have made these two amazing records that to me kind of seem like they fit into the continuum of, of, of this particular Bill Forsell record, but 
they have their own character too. And it's if anyone is curious about hearing Keltner in a wilder sort of situation where he's not just being the tasteful god that he is, I would highly recommend the the two Mike Baguetta, Mike Watt, Jim Kelton records because they are also just just transcendently wonderful. I love it. All right, well here's Verona. The shaker, you can sort of surmise that it might be live because there's not a lot of like audible right hand action happening. It's not like he's riding on something. So sure. you're like, okay. And, and and then those other kind of clanky sounds that come in are very like classic late 90s Keltner sort of where he was getting into these weird other sounds that turn up a lot in that era for him. Is that it's like it's, he's like pitching it's almost like it's full of water and he's like wow yeah there, there's some sort of interesting overdub happening there um th- there must be an overdub but uh <laughs> you know when you hit a gong that's laying flat you can yeah. sort of almost get that sort of sound with a mallet or something or like a like a tin uh kitchen uh bowl Yes, the holding that up 100%. and hitting it with the mallet. Yep, my air fryer makes an amazing sound if you tap the bottom of it. There you go. Snare cases make great bass drums, uh, according to yes. Griffin Goldsmith from Dawes, who actually Jim recorded a little bit with them as well. There was an amazing drummer from this part of the world named Andy Graffiti who used to do stuff like that with the the the, the suitcase kick drum that was just unbelievable. Yeah. But yeah, playing playing with playing with a shaker in the other hand has always been something that, um, and that's something I kind of picked up from people like Glenn Kochi as well. It's just sure. like having instead of just hitting a cymbal with your in eighth note on the rider's hi hat with your right hand, use a shaker or, or or also hold a shaker or put a little tambourine in your hand or something. Those things to me were hugely world opening. Absolutely. And I'm sure as a producer, I mean, that just gives you so many ideas. If they're like, the song needs something, you're like, what would Keltner do? Yep. Hey, y'all. I wanted to, (laughs) I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. 
but I went to his garage, his his you know where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with the drum, and it was it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com, just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve Six tour, and I didn't keep it and i regretted it ever since then just because i was trying to pinch pennies at the time and i just kept thinking about it and so the opportunity to get it again was presented and it is one of my favorite drums so the ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum check it out reach out to me go to vessel drum co the instagram's just at vessel drum co and check it out it's amazing it's beautiful sounds great bye all right so Number two, the album is Outlaster. The artist is Nina Natasia. How do you how would you pronounce pronounce that? Uh, I, I recently heard that it's Nastasia. Nastasia. I forgot one of the S's. So yeah, Nastasia. Released here is 2010, and a few key tracks. Uh, You're a holy man, and you can take your time. But yeah, Jay Belarus. So take it away. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I heard Nina Nastasia's music was something that I encountered through just reading back in the good old days, Uncut Magazine and Mojo and those British, those amazing British music magazines that went much deeper than a lot of the, their North American counterparts. And they would always be picking up on sort of more interesting stuff. And definitely around the early 2000s, they were focusing a lot on sort of rootsy singer-songwritery things. And Nina Nastasia is... Um, She's worked with Belarus for a really long time, not from the very beginning, from what I understand from the discography, but a a good chunk of the middle section of her records all have him on it. And and so Jay Belarus is, is, to me, he's kind of like the newer Keltner. I mean, he he occupies, especially in the way that we just heard Keltner on that last track, he he occupies a very, very similar uh, realm uh, as him, which is amazing feel, amazing touch, amazing sensitivity, and then this uh, tendency to um, enhance the drums with other sounds, shakers, prepared drums, using idiosyncratic drum choices and cymbal choices. But this record to me was just like, Nina's songs are, are pretty un- unusual songs. Some of them are very short and some of them are very intense. And some of them just have needs that need to be serviced by other kinds of attention on the drums. And um, Jay Belarus just has such an interesting approach to drumming. He really, see- every time I hear him play on a track, it seems like he's playing it for the first time. And that is an amazing trait. Because I know that being in the studio a lot, like a lot of times you'll be in I'll be in the studio maybe not as as a producer so much as just a session player where someone will be playing through the song on the first time and I just jump in halfway through the first verse just to start getting the feeling kind of thing and then and then you get to the end and obviously you've missed some bits and you've maybe missed the end of this weirdly long verse or this chorus that goes one extra bar but by the end of it like your performance on that take was Probably the best one, sadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, oh, not sadly, but it's like what that information did to me was just make me try to be as present as possible at all possible times playing the drums. So treating every single moment like it's the take. And and you listen so much harder when you haven't heard something. This is this is a lot of the reason that I love improvising and, and free improvised music, because not only are you hearing this for the first time, but you're never going to hear it again in some cases. 
So you you have to be willing to give your best reaction to this thing in the very moment that it's happening. And so that's the way that he sounds on these records. He sounds like he's maybe sight reading a, a chart. I, I don't think probably that that's what's happening, but that's what it sounds like to me. And that's it's super exciting. Um, and he also has this really weird way of... Um, playing the drums in more of an orchestral manner almost like these all these these he's got like a, a big floor tom that is is very resonant and it's, it's almost timpani-esque mm. and so he's doing all these interesting sort of flourishes on that and then he's just the snare he's he's using in a different manner i recently listened to an interview with him where he talked about the fact that he doesn't think that he has a good bass drum foot you always got something you hate about your own playing for sure <laughs> De definitely but I was just so charmed by the idea that this masterful drum maestro was shitting on his own bass drum foot. <laughs> and I, I just oh, thought endearing. that was su such a wonderful moment of humility. And, but, also f but also more practically, it meant that he was able to, he, he focused on other things. So, so like sometimes if he was able to in a studio, he said he would play the kick drum pattern on a floor tom in order to like, you know, let his hands do the talking rather than his feet, which I, I just thought was so interesting. But he, he's obviously someone who is coming from the, not only someone who knows a lot about drumming, but he's just very conscientious about making things sound good and, and wanting to approach things in a, in a way that makes the most sense. And so that sort of meant to me, while it's like, you got to get over yourself sometimes and you have to sort of like, w w whatever is going to make the best end result on this. And so if it is, I have to play the kick drum pattern on the floor tom in order to make it sound the, the best way that I can make it sound. That's amazing and very liberating and sort of, because, you know, there's the, there's a whole like sort of, once, once you get into the studio, there can, there can be an almost like athletic sort of jockey vibe that gets into things where it's like, how fast can you do something or how hard can you do something or how quickly does this happen or something? And it's like, no, you just got to make it, work for this moment and this this group of people who are in a room together and trying to do this thing you know th this record was just it's just absolutely wonderful supportive reactive drumming and it's got this sort of symphonic aspect almost this orchestral aspect where he's doing things that most drummers wouldn't do and some of it is because it's a recording and you can get away with these type of dynamics and you can rely on the fact that things are going to be heard properly when you're playing live in a club or whatever. You you might be uh, strung up because of that stuff. You're just going to get lost. But in the studio, when you got Steve Albini recording you in this particular album, it's just it's just the best. And and so he he played on a bunch of her records. Um, it's all beautiful. And and funnily enough, there's a group from Calgary who were called the Cape May and now mostly exists as a band called Florida BC who played with Nina. Uh, they toured with her. They met her through Steve Albini, who they'd both recorded records with. And in the fall of 2020, I got to make a record with her, remotely with her and a local person from here named Jeff McLeod. Um, we, we talked to the phone. I was receiving raw stems of Nina's singing and guitar playing. It was a whole weird full circle moment. And she's playing the Folk Fest here in town this summer. So I think we're going to finally get to, to, to meet. And I'm very excited about that. But yeah, this, this record, I again, Jay Belarus, I could have picked so many records. His stuff with Amy Mann or his more recent work with Jeff Parker is just unreal. 
and highly, highly inspiring, even going back to his stuff with Paula Cole and things like that. Like, he's just a wonderful, and I've listened to many interviews with him too, and he just seems like a sweet, sweet man. And I I would love to uh, bump into him on the street sometime. I'll will that into existence. I think it will. And I was going to, I was going to, uh, going back to your point earlier about hearing things for the first time, I, I know famously both Bob Dylan and Gordon Lightfoot also really like to have their musicians hear things for the first time and to record it, you know? And, and Neil Young too. Like, I, I feel like at least Neil Young would, uh, he always had uh, a tape recorder running, like a backup recorder at all times. So if some beautiful thing happened and it was, wasn't going to be on the final, there'd still be some record of it. And uh, I think there's certain Bob Dylan stuff. I, I think, I think um, Blood on the Tracks, there's some stuff on there that is first takes. And I remember listening to Blood on the Tracks for the first time. And I, I can't remember who plays drums on that. Maybe it's Kenny Buttry. I, I can't quite remember who it is. But whoever's on that record, there's some hi-hat work on that album that is just kind of outlandish and is really has the feeling of figuring something out and trying things and is maybe not what would happen on the sixth take or something like that. Yeah. And that, that, that sort of stuff to me is just so exciting. So yeah, which, which track would you like to focus on? I think I did them all in sort of um, order of importance. So the okay, first well, one the... probably is the most potent. You're a holy man. Here we go. Again, it's like almost not even drumming, really. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. I mean, it is drumming. Obviously, it's drumming, but it's like, it's not like, it's so unconventional. Well, and the way it's recorded, too, there's like no attack. It's just all, mm-hmm. it's all like the, the after the transient. It's just like the whole middle section of it just feels like it's just yeah. warm and you're inside the sound. He, he uses a lot of very cool vintage drums, too. He's a whole vintage drum nerd that I, I've Sounds listened to like a lot it. of him talk about that. But it's, yeah. All right, so number three, Largo, uh, Brad Meldow, 2002, and and yeah, Dusty McNugget and When It Rains, two great tracks, and Maddie Chamberlain. So what's the deal with this one? I I, I mean, I, I became aware of Matt Chamberlain at a kind of a young age. Uh, again, it was a modern drummer thing, largely, that, that really squared my knowledge of him, but I, I'd already been aware of the wallflowers uh, bringing down the horse 
and also the subsequent record Breach, which he also plays on. That those two records, honestly, and this is a whole we could do a whole other podcast about this, but this there was just a whole thing about the Wallflowers record where bringing down the horse that Wallflowers record had a band, the Wallflowers band, and they had a drummer who was the guy in the pictures and he was listed as the drummer in the Wallflowers on the records. But then there was this other guy who was credited as all drums on these records and it was Matt Chamberlain for two records in a row. And that blew my mind for, you know, decades. I, I sort of like thought that that was a, an extremely interesting dynamic and how did this happen and why did this happen I did a bunch of research on it, and uh, I, I did find out the story um, about how Andrew Slater, the producer of those records, really wanted to have his own sort of wrecking crew. He sort of, around the time that Andrew Slater was producing uh, Macy Gray and Fiona Apple's first record, he had sort of developed this crew of people from L.A., including Chamberlain and Patrick Warren and John Bryan and these other people. They would be um, his wrecking crew, his 90s wrecking crew. Um, and uh, which I just think is so, so sick, so, like, such such a great like concept and thing to try to make happen in in, in the '90s. But um, that, that's a sort of sidebar to my whole fascination about studio drumming and, and the life of the studio drummer and how a studio drummer in, interacts with a, a band who has a drummer or doesn't have a drummer or wh whatever the dynamic might be. Mm -hmm. When I was in my late teens, I, saw, I, I discovered jazz. And um, after that, I went along to do a, a few years of a jazz diploma program in, in Calgary. And during that time, I was just ravenous about all things uh, music, as, as I still am. But I uh, was really into just finding out about new jazz things. And at the same time, I was still into the pop and rock world and checking out studio albums and all this stuff. So Brad Meldo in the late 90s was one of the leading lights of like contemporary jazz. Ultimately, he was hailed as the, the new uh, sort of Bill Evans type character in, in the jazz world. And then he put out this record with L.A. super producer John Bryan. And I'd recently become aware of John Bryan through his work with uh, Fiona Apple, um, which also uh, has drumming for Matt Chamberlain on the first couple records. And this record was just an absolute feast. It was an amazingly gifted piano player and, it turns out, writer. I, 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 I can't recall offhand how much of Brad Mello's early work in his um, Art of the Trio records were originals. I can't remember that, but... The stuff that he writes on this record is so tasty, and um, the album sounds amazing. Dusty McNugget in particular, this drum sound happens over the course of the record, but I, I, I think if I had to put it down on paper, I would say that this is my all-time platonic ideal of a snare sound mm. on Dusty McNugget, because it's just... And again, you, you, you could find this snare sound on many Matt Chamberlain records, but uh, this particular one... There's just the, the melody and the playing and the feel and he's 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 funky and he's sensitive and his his hi-hat work is unbelievably expressive. Um, he's just I try to really pay attention to hi-hats and how you can do a lot with hi-hats that you could maybe otherwise do with a fill if you were being a bit more intrusive with with your drumming. But hi-hats can speak a lot and they can they can do a lot to outline structure. They can do a lot to provide a sense of form and 
they can be way more expressive than one might assume. And this song has all of that in it. And it's um, the whole record is for, for drummers is just unreal. It's it's mostly it's mostly um, Matt Chamberlain on drums, but Keltner's on it also, and as is uh, Jorge Rossi, who is uh, at the time was Brad Mello's main dr- drummer in his trio, who is just a beautiful jazz drummer as well. And um, this is just an amazing coming together of so many things that I was already interested in and continued to be interested in. And every time I hear this record, I, I get completely distracted and enveloped by it because it's just so amazing. And again, Matt, Matt Chamberlain, like like with the Keltner record, maybe I'm picking up on a theme of, for myself here, is that like hearing a guy that's mostly hired to do, not, not a bare minimum exactly, but some sort of like ser- serving another thing beyond the drums, whether it's the song. And, and, and these guys do, do it so beautifully. I mean, think of One Headlight by the Wallflowers. That song is just literally, it's the first drum beat you learn. But here's this beautiful dude doing it with such aplomb and such beauty and, and just balance and taste. The whole thing is just disturbingly wonderful. And then you get to hear him do his thing on this record. He's, he's on different parts of this album. He's, he's stretching out. He's improvising. There's another band called Critters Buggin'. Pretty obscure. You know about this? I've heard uh, of them, yeah. They were a Seattle-based band. There's a bunch of guys, I think, who lived in the Seattle area, and they were all just these cool nerds who liked instrumental music and jazzy weirdness, and they made a bunch of really great, cool instrumental records. And so that's another place you can hear Matt Chamberlain go, go down some cool roads. But this one was just like so perfectly produced. And then he's playing with Brad Meldow, who is just a jazz, contemporary jazz legend. And the whole thing was just almost too much to bear. And it's almost crazy to think that it even exists at this point. I mean, those guys, I think that that core group of, of musicians did another record together, but it wasn't as, it wasn't nearly as um, deep as this one in, in, in a way. It was, it was, it was a different thing. I think the, the brushes in the background, I think that's Keltner too. I think he's playing brushes I've behind heard that, yeah. Matt Chamberlain, which is, come on. has either got like a piece of paper on it or a towel or something on the on it maybe you know if it was 10 years into the future maybe it would have been a big fat snare drum I know, I know. thing you know what i mean but it's like legally i can't respond to that The idea of drummers playing together on a record, too, is so cool. I mean, Jim O'Rourke has a couple records with two drummers on them that are amazing. Glenn Kochi and Tim Barnes that are so unbelievable, too. But this one has that thing of, like, a main thing, and then another guy just sort of jamming along and adding some sprinkles onto stuff that's just so, so juicy. Yeah. But half, half the snare drums I try to record... I'm just trying to get this sound. 
timeless. This this scenario isn't pissing anyone off. No. All right. Well, number four. The album is Drainage. The artist is Phil Minton and Roger Turner. The release here is 2003. The key track that we'll listen to is all of it. No, it's all. The, listen to the whole record. <laughs> and uh, the drummer is Roger Turner. So yeah, take it away. Yes. So we've been talking a lot about pop music and rock and pop drumming so, so far, but it, it would it would be untoward of me to not uh, discuss my deep engagement with the realm realm of free improvisation. I went to jazz school as when I was uh, after high school. That's where I went to, to do my post-secondary education was at a jazz diploma program in Calgary. The, th- the thing that I always really liked about jazz music was the improvising part. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily like so much the idea of the compositions like I mean the compositions were fine like I never had any problem with that stuff but for me the most interesting part was always just when you get to do your own thing. And mm-hmm. the, the next selection will, will, will highly illustrate why I, I re- really enjoyed that part of it. But as I got through jazz school, I sort of started to learn that I wasn't a jazz drummer. Like I wasn't going to be that person. I didn't have the interest or inner workings to become a, a, like a, a jazz drummer that I, I could get behind, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that I could feel good about pushing into the world. But I did really get into improvised music, and and as I was starting to explore jazz early on, um, there were bands like Modesky, Martin, and Wood, um, who fused things um, such as like groove-based music um, and so-called acid jazz and things like that. But they were also, you know, especially if you heard their live recordings, they would go off into full-on free jazz flights of fancy, and it was amazing, and it was the best, and and. I loved those guys, and liking that kind of music led me into a whole other realm of free jazz. And then, and then I got very, very interested in the world of European free, free improvisation. Which I'm not sure if this is something that you're hip to necessarily, but like it's a whole other thing. Peter Bratzman, the legendary German saxophone player, free jazz legend, just died a few days ago, and he was a bit of uh, a linchpin for all this stuff. He was he 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 was active in um you know uh, from the mid sixties until eight months ago when he he got ill I think and um so a person like him led me to check out all this other kind of music that was obviously inspired by jazz and it was a jazz based or at least jazz derived in some way but it was. It was just a, a type of expression that took some of the liberties of jazz while dispensing with s- certain formal um, ideas. Mm-hmm. Roger Turner, he's my guy in this whole realm. So he's British. He's he's a British percussionist. He's been active since the mid-70s, and he's still making amazing work. He's very well known for uh, a number of duos, um, one of which is this duo with the vocalist Phil Minton. Vocal and drum duo is, is as unlikely as it seems, is utterly transcendent uh, music. I, I did have the, the good fortune to see them perform live in concert uh, once when I was in London in the late aughts, and I got to meet him and say hello, and I'm in the in the process of working on a release with him and legendary guitarist Eugene Chadbourne. The two of them have a recording, which I'm in the process of sort of cleaning up fidelity-wise and getting ready to put it out. And wow. 
Yeah, I've done one other release for him as well um, that happened uh, through a Canadian uh, mutual friend named Scott Thompson, a trombonist from Montreal, who's also just a wonderful musician. So, so Roger Turner plays like, sometimes he plays a full drum set, sometimes he plays a kit with toms and a bass drum and stuff. But, but when I saw him, and, and many times when you see him, including, I think, lar- largely on this album, Drainage, he'll just use one or two drums, sometimes just a snare drum and a cymbal on a stand. And then he's just got all this stuff around him. And it's bits and pieces that he has found and collected and bought and sourced out and stumbled across. In the world of free improvisation, he he fully embodies the, the potential of what that music can offer to a percussionist. He He's just unbelievably resourceful. He's reactive to, a, to an extent that is... There's videos from, of him playing online, especially... Um, I have seen him play, but I, I do I, I I go to the videos a lot just because you can see much more of them. He has a duo with uh, the the late beautiful guitar player John Russell, who is a, a sort of a friend and acquaintance, and, and just a hugely inspiring British improviser who reigned supreme for many years. Uh, he passed away maybe five or six years ago, but he he had a, another amazing duo with Roger Turner, and um, watching those guys play together is. It almost immediately makes me emotional just by by how how profoundly inventive and presently focused it is. There's a complete commitment to being 100% present in a moment and reacting and, and shifting and thrusting an ego aside in service of the moment that is just so inspiring and so artful, just completely overwhelmingly amazing before we just talked tonight i just listened to a record of his while reading his book his amazing book called junk percussion where he catalogs his entire collection of weird shit that he plays junk percussion all right you must check it out it's inexpensive on amazon you know and uh it's just wonderful he's hilarious and self-effacing and very british in the text and it's this wonderful wonderful book yeah, he, he's an utter master of improvising. Sometimes he plays, again, like I said, with a full kit. Sometimes he plays in more raucous, louder groups. There's one called Conk Pack in particular that, that is amazing. But my favorite way to hear him is with one other person in a relatively quiet scenario, which is what this record is. This is this is sort of like um, him and Phil Mitten have a number of records together, but this, this one is, is the most wide-ranging of all of them. And it's a okay. two-disc set. I think one of them is a live performance and the other one is a bunch of sort of more focused studio explorations so yeah i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure what what's going to be the best thing to play but maybe just dive into one of the tracks dude i'm i'm trying to find it i couldn't even find it is it on spotify or it's it's on a like pretty obscure label called eminem which is the different spelling than the the the, the rapper eminem but it's a uh, okay. It's Emanem. Yeah, so the the all, most of his best work is on that label. Ultimately, and and I wouldn't be surprised. I should have mentioned this in the email, but the, the, I wouldn't be surprised if they were not on any streaming services. But anything by those two. Ultimately, the, there might be one called Ammo by those two guys. All right, here we go. We got Ammo. Okay, okay beautiful.
So that's Phil in the back? That's Phil Minton singing. Yeah, a lot of their stuff sort of has like a strong element of sort of absurdity and surrealism in it. Um, there's definitely a, a sort of artistic thrust that is framing some of this stuff. There's like definitely some concepts at play. Let's fast forward to the part where that looks loud on on SoundCloud. Maybe we can hear, <laughs> yeah, hear a little more rhythmic stuff. I haven't heard something like that before. I'll say that. Oh man, I—he's unbelievable. This guy—he's a, a complete visionary player. I—I I, I adore him. That's awesome. Wow, it's—it's it's always fun to be surprised because you think you hear it all. Oh yeah, and weirdly, he looks almost—he—he's a spitting image of my paternal grandpa. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was in London. I was in London as a a, a young man with my my folks and uh, my mom went to this show with me bless her but uh, uh and, and she was <laughs> she just sounds like amazing she was like oh my god this guy looks like your grandpa you know you know it was amazing yeah but anyway so yeah that's there's there's, there's a whole world out there with him and some of it is recorded in a more nuanced fashion but uh, uh roger turner is a complete legend hell yeah man he's an artist good for him man that's mm-hmm. it keep it up all right so number five the album is nefertiti the artist is Miles Davis, released here's 1968. Key tracks, the titular track, Fail and Hand Jive, and the drummer's Anthony Williams. So take it away, and then we'll listen to some, some Nefertiti. Yeah, so this was one of um, the first jazz albums I ever bought, weirdly. The first two jazz records I went out and bought were this and... On the opposite side of the spectrum, Art Blakey, the Jazz Ventures Live at the Birdland, Volume That was one, one of the first. Yeah, that was one, one of the two. first records was I bought too. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, yeah. Again, going back to Modern Drummer Magazine, there was the interview part, which was the main part of the uh, article. But then there were always the sidebars. One of the sidebars was you'd see a picture of their setup, and then another sidebar was what records they'd played on that best represented them, and then the other sidebar was what albums that they had heard that informed their business. Tony Williams just kept showing up. The jazz guys, of course, would rep him, but then also Matt Cameron from Soundgarden would rep him, and Jack Irons from Pearl Jam would rep him, and uh, Matt Chamberlain might have repped him. It's been a minute since I've looked at my back issues, but I was just like, okay, I gotta hear this, dude. This is this is happening too often. It's I got I got to check in. And um, the Nefertiti album had come up on one of those lists, and it was on sale at Megatunes, this beautiful old store in Calgary. And um, I was so confused by this album because jazz, and I'd been studying jazz for a little bit at this time, but it was really just that I uh, 
had never heard something so open before, and I'd never heard jazz being played in a way that was so willing to cast off its constituent parts, if you will. Normally, you hear a bass player walking on the one, two, three, four. You hear a drummer going, dun, ching, dun, ching, dun, ching, you get that vibe. You get a piano player who's kind of comping behind that stuff kind of the whole time. And then this record was just, none of that was happening. And the drumming was so free and so improvisatory seeming. And it was just so wild. And sometimes it was very loud and sometimes it was, it was very quiet. It was hugely dynamic and just wonderfully executed. And all this, the stick clarity and the cymbal work was just unbelievable especially the first track, Nefertiti, for anyone who's heard the record, they will know that that song is just the head repeated over and over and over by the horns. And Tony just kind of solos. It's like an opposite jazz song, where it's like he starts off kind of supporting the song, but then he just goes wilder and wilder as the song progresses, and he's just playing over... He's kind of doing this long, long solo over this wonderful Wayne Shorter head. Um, Wayne Shorter was always one of my favorite jazz writers. Um, uh, he wrote so many beautiful jazz songs, but this one in particular, just the structure of this one and the way the, the way that they chose to, to do it was just wild to me. So when I first heard it, I, I was alienated by it to, to an epic extent, but the songwriting, the composition drew me back repeatedly. And then also just the fact that the drumming was so amazing and so wild. I've always just loved this record, and I continue to forcibly put it on at any party that I have. Once the night gets to a certain hour, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to put on Nefertiti. People are going to deal with this. <laughs> you know? It's time. It's time. And it's like those melodies are so weirdly like they've got this sort of modernist aspect to them, but they're also so melancholic and so memorable. And I'm not even a melodic musician for the most part. I mean, I do a lot of making notes in music, but it's, you know, these things just stick in my mind. And like a, a tune like Fall or Nefertiti, these melodies are burned into my brain. So it was my it was my intro into Tony. Uh, I got into many of his records with Andrew Hill, Gracken Moncur, Kenny Dorham. There, there were many records that he played. On, and then later on with the the Tony Williams lifetime and all that stuff. Um, I checked all that stuff out, but this, this was just like the most advanced jazz language that I'd ever heard at the time. And, and I honestly don't think that it's ever been really matched. Maybe that Wayne Shorter quartet from the early aughts with Brian Blade, John Petitucci and Danilo Perez was yep. pretty fucking heavy too. But this, this, and, and, but I honestly think they are drawing on this whole vibe. So it's, I, I, th this record to me is just Desert Island Top 5. Those Columbia recordings from the late 60s were just untouchable. We all love Rudy Van Gelder and the Blue Note thing, but like Columbia had more of a budget, so they had a nicer studio ultimately. And like these records sound unbelievable. 
his ride cymbal sound alone, like take away the whole drum set, but the ride cymbal sound alone is just, just these weird moments where he's just being so irreverent. But the hi-hat not being on the two and four, I mean, that was something that's sure. burned into you so early on as, as a jazz uh, student that you have to put your hi-hat on the two and four and stuff. And this really doesn't have any of that stuff. Like the piano is playing in such a bizarre way. There's like, I think this is one of the albums where Miles Davis told Herbie Hancock to sit on his left hand so he doesn't comp too much. And then the bass line is so all over the place. And then... But just that the Ryan symbol being this hugely movable uh, component. But just such ballsy choices. Yeah. He was also so young during this time. He was like, when he got discovered by Miles, he was like 17 or something like that. Like, it was like, and so this was only a few years later. And it's like, it's completely insane to me that like, he was able to be this assertive at that age is so inspiring. But it's just the head over and over again for eight minutes or whatever, and it's just this beautiful sort of drum thing with with the head behind it. And they're, they're also really messing around with the phrasing of the head and the the harmony and stuff like it's it's just the whole thing is so free but also not free Yeah, so that, that's your big fat five, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And so if people... Oh, my pleasure. This is your... Yeah, no, this is this is really fun. If you want to uh, do some self-promotion, the floor is yours. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, well, uh, I mean, if you happen to live in Calgary, you probably know who I am and maybe have worked with me before even. <laughs> but, but outside of that, I'm mostly known for playing with... Uh, uh, Chad Van Galen, who is a, a sub-pop recording artist from Calgary, who I've been working with for the last uh, sort of near near decade. And uh, other than that, I've, I've played drums on all the records by the band Always, a Canadian band called Always. I've played on all their records. And Sheridan uh, is a, a friend of the pod. Sheridan loves Sheridan. Absolutely. I'm going to be messaging Sheridan after this, by the way, just awesome. to say, because I listened to Sheridan's episode earlier today and I was very excited. But yeah, if, if you're curious to know more about me, my website is chrisedge.com and I have a band camp, which has a whole bunch of different weird stuff on it. It's a bit of a mixed bag, honestly, um, anywhere from 
solo percussion and improv things to more composed, also very strange things. It's, it's mostly kind of odd stuff. Um, my website has a full listing of all the records that I've made and all the people that I've worked with and many SoundCloud and Bandcamp links to things that you can hear in terms of drumming and percussion and production work and recording work. And I do have a solo album, solo songs. I played for many years with a band called Lab Coast um, and we're not really active anymore, but um, my post Lab Coast project is just going to be a solo thing that I'm in the 95% stage of finishing and that will be hopefully out sooner than later. And in the meantime, yeah, I'm, I'm ripping around Western Canada. Bands like uh, my partner, Samantha Savage-Smith, is an amazing songwriter who I've been working with for close to 15 years, and we uh, have a number of records under our belt and things like that. And yeah, check out bugincision.com or bugincision Bandcamp, and we have 80 records of stuff and monthly concerts of music around this part of the world so please check it out hell yeah man like i said yeah you are busy dude you're an inspiration for sure um it was it was a pleasure talking to you man i appreciate you reaching out and it's been a 100 a, a pleasure on my end too hey what's up ben this is Dwayne calling from chula vista california calling in with my uh, listener pick um, I've been a drummer for 30 years. I started out when I was about 12 years old. Um, I stole my dad's Houses of the Holy cassette tape and burned a hole in it, learning all those songs. So I've always been a Bonham fan. Uh, then as I got a little older, I, I you know, moved on to like Pearl Jam and, and Nirvana, a little bit of metal, you know, Pantera. And then a, a buddy of mine showed me Deftones when I was about 14, 15 years old. And I just loved it right away. I just thought it was kind of spooky and, and it had that, you know, it was hard, but it had a groove and went and saw him live in 96. And when I saw the way that Abe played, I was just blown away. You know, I'd never seen anybody play like that and, and mean it like the way he did. And, you know, he kind of changed my, my style for the better ever since then in my own playing. So uh, the song I picked, and it was really hard to narrow it down because there's so many good ones, but... Uh, I picked Bloody Cape off their fourth record, their self-titled record. Bloody Cape just, I guess, kind of displays Abe's style, and you know, you can hear the power in his playing. You know, when it when it comes in, it comes in with that chorus beat, and then it, when it goes into the verse, kind of opens up into a more of a kind of a straightforward pocket beat. But he's always doing something tricky with the bass drum. You know, it's never. A pattern that you would expect you know but he, he picks such a cool pattern and then he always you know sticks with that pattern you know and it, it gives it that kind of repetitive hypnotic kind of sound you know so yeah that's my pick uh you're the man ben i appreciate it love the show later
And that's the show. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews, do that. It helps more people find the show, so it'll get bigger and better, and hopefully I'll have a chance to sell out one day. But you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends. Anyways, why don't you go and check us out at BigFatSnareDrum.com and follow us on all the socials. Just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us. The show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at Isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!